0: and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for inviting me here today to reflect on the United States response to COVID-19 and what we've learned over the past year. It's appropriate this month to discuss what was going on about a year ago after word of the virus had finally emerged from China and when the U.S. government began to take action. As anyone involved in emergency response knows, the early actions you take are crucial. They help lay the groundwork for the months that follow. At the same time, decision-making early in a crisis is difficult. You have to make decisions based on the information you have at the time. And that information was severely limited by the fact that this virus emerged in China and that it was a novel pathogen. With the limited information we had about the virus, we had to act before the situation became a crisis. And that's exactly what we did. Let's consider when and how the United States became aware of the virus. We learned about an outbreak of pneumonia of unknown origin in Wuhan, China, on December 30th. Not through that country's official channels, as required under the international health regulations, but through media monitoring that we do. As well as through a notification from Taiwan's economic and cultural office here in the United States. That's right. One of the very first ways the U.S. government was notified of a novel virus in mainland China was by people from Taiwan. On January 1st, CDC began developing situation reports on the suspected novel virus. On January 3rd, HHS notified the National Security Council, which began holding daily meetings on January 14th, just three days after China finally publicly admitted the first death caused by the virus, and the same day that the World Health Organization repeated the claim that there was no human to human transmission. We at HHS immediately recognized the potential danger of a novel coronavirus. Potential, not certain danger, but definitely potential. CDC issued its first travel warning for China on January 6th and established an incident management team on January 7th. As we worked to learn more about the virus, we at HHS adopted some key strategies and principles grounded in pandemic response planning. First, we would operate with what we called radical transparency. The public would know what we knew when we knew it, and they would know what we did not have the answers to. Second, we would ensure that the American people and top policymakers had direct access to our top infectious disease experts. Third, we would follow the Pandemic Action Plan as the situation developed to contain and mitigate the disease as much as possible especially with the goal of ensuring that the epidemiological curve and disease burden would remain within our health system's capacity to manage cases. Fourth, we would act in an anticipatory manner. The mantra that others and I repeated often during this period was a well-known public health adage, You need to take actions now that might seem like an overreaction because what you are seeing epidemiologically is like looking in the rearview mirror by as much as 28 days. Take actions now to respond to what you think the situation will look like in 28 days. CDC quickly began working with Customs and Border Protection to start border screening. On January 17th, we began enhanced screening of travelers from Wuhan at three U.S. airports that received significant numbers of travelers from that city. And this effort expanded the following week to five airports, so that 75 to 80 percent of travelers from Wuhan could be screened. That same day, January 17th, CDC began media briefings on the novel virus. Even as we were relaying what we knew to the American people, we suspected we could not trust the reports out of China. Reports from China suggested that the virus had likely emerged there by November, and the Chinese government's explanation for the outbreak did not make sense. Our CDC director, Dr. Bob Redfield, was told by his Chinese counterpart, Dr. Gao of the China CDC, that the story was that the virus had originated from animals in the now-infamous Wuhan market. Yet, in the first week of January, there were several clusters of cases within families, which were very unlikely to have come from close encounters with animals, suggesting human-to-human transmission. There was so much we needed to know and so little information coming out of China. That's why on January 3rd at my direction, Dr. Redfield emailed Dr. Gao again and offered to provide a team of CDC technical experts to assist with an investigation. On January 6th at my request, Dr. Redfield sent a formal letter to the China CDC offering full assistance. Throughout January, we continued to make this offer of assistance clear to China. It was not until January 29th that our offer was even officially acknowledged. By that time, one, our, one major focus was pushing for an immediate deployment of an international team through WHO, as is customary for potentially concerning outbreaks. <clears throat> I emphasize the, current ne- the urgent need for such a mission in a call with D- Director General Tedros on January 27th, when he had arrived in Beijing to press President Xi to cooperate and allow entry of an international team. That same day, I personally pressed my counterpart, Minister Ma, and reiterated our offer of full support. Throughout this time, our diplomatic leaders and staff were constantly pressing their counterparts at WHO on the need for an international mission to investigate the virus. Our teams were also pressing for the Chinese government To send us viral isolates from patients there and china has still one year later failed to provide the first generation viral isolates it was not until february 16th that the international team arrived in china with two american experts from nih and cdc on board by this time chinese intransigence meant that the window of opportunity had passed outbreaks of the virus had been seeded around the world we had been denied the chance to learn about the virus by the country where it originated. On February 3rd, I convened the first meeting of G7 health ministers to enable sharing of best practices and coordination among these key nations. I have now chaired 22 meetings of this group in 2020 under the U.S. presidency of the G7. People often ask, why was the administration offering any form of praise for China in those early days? There were a few reasons. First, we were always clear that with China, you you don't know what you don't know. Second, we said that China was being more transparent and cooperative than with SARS, because that was the constant refrain from WHO, but that was a low bar. It turns out that if they got an F for SARS transparency, they deserve at best a D on COVID-19. Third, with China, if you want to get access and cooperation, sometimes a bit of public praise gets you further than hitting them over the head publicly. So we pressed them very hard and firmly in private, but offered muted reinforcement in public, at least while we still thought we might be able to secure their full cooperation and compliance with the international health regulations. Unfortunately, WHO never made the shift we did, continuing to lavish praise on China even to this day. Our concerns were confirmed after the return of the international team organized by WHO when we learned that the scope of their work had been restricted to observing China's outbreak response, not the origins of the virus itself. <clears throat> the same bullying of international experts and scientists sadly has continued. In May, member states of the World Health Organization had to authorize by resolution an investigation specifically into the virus's origins. Unbelievably, it was only this week that the investigators were allowed into China. Further, these investigators will largely examine the analyses already done by Chinese scientists. This flawed scope of investigation is the result of months of negotiations over last summer and into the fall between WHO and China, with no input from the WHO executive board through which member states like the U.S. have an actual say. I encourage those China watchers here at Heritage to continue following China's conduct around this investigation quite closely. China has spent the better part of this year shamelessly promoting an Orwellian version of events designed to persuade the world that its authoritarian form of government is best suited to respond to a public health crisis. The facts are, however, that if a novel virus like this had emerged in a democratic nation, a global outbreak might never have occurred. Contrast what I've just described with how the United Kingdom has handled the recent emergence of a more transmissible variant of the virus. As soon as the new variant was identified by scientists, the news was shared with the world, as was the genetic sequence. The genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2 in China was not shared until January 9th, through 10th, 9th, January 9th, 10 days after the virus was reported in the media, and likely one or two months after it had actually appeared. Being able to investigate the virus in January would have helped the United States and the world develop a science and data-driven response. Instead, we were flying blind, with human-to-human transmission of the virus not officially confirmed until January 20. But even without all the data we needed, we were looking at the information we had to prepare and formulate a public health response. China's response, if not their public pronouncements was making it clear that they faced an extremely serious situation. We needed to buy time to prepare. But one potential intervention, restricting travel of those coming from the one place where the virus was rampant, China, was not part of any pandemic playbook. In fact, it was intentionally kept out of pandemic flu planning. The theory was that travel restrictions could impede emergency responses and cause economic damage far out of proportion to the benefit from slowing the virus's spread. I knew this argument well because it was a central principle in the creation of an international framework for pandemic flu response in the 2000s when the G20 nations agreed not to include travel restrictions as part of our joint planning. Opposition to the use of travel restrictions was a deeply embedded orthodoxy in the global public health establishment. But we saw what was happening in China—the lockdown of whole cities—and we saw that it was time to rethink this two-decade-old dogma. On January 30th, I had a call with Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, and other public health leaders from CDC. Together we agreed that the situation had changed, and we formulated a case to present to the president. Meeting with the president on the afternoon of January 31st, I explained the case to him. About 20,000 people were arriving in the United States each day from China. If we dramatically decreased travel, we could slow the spread and buy ourselves time. That, I told the president, was the unanimous recommendation of the public health leaders he had before him. That evening in the White House briefing room, when there were still just 125 confirmed cases worldwide outside of China, I declared a public health emergency and announced the unprecedented restrictions on travel from China. At the time, we were accused of overreaction, of xenophobia, yet experts have now concluded that early travel restrictions slowed the spread of the virus, bought us time, and likely saved lives. We were able to effectively identify and isolate cases originating from or connected to China and Chinese travel. We saw a very early serious outbreak at a nursing home in Washington but we responded quickly with a team from the Public Health Service Commission Corps, and that was not the seeding event for the U.S. Rather, one of the key drivers was thousands of Chinese workers in Northern Italy, which then led to undetected spread of disease in Europe and seeding from Europe into the United States. Genetic data show that the major early outbreaks in the U.S. were from European variants. Ominously, while China had locked down internally, they had done nothing to prevent travel by their own citizens internationally, providing the opportunity to seed outbreaks around the world. Meanwhile, very early on in the outbreak, a key issue arose from the State Department. There were diplomatic personnel and dependents trapped in Hubei Province, and the State Department wanted to extract them from China on a charter flight. Under the direction of Matt Pottinger, the Deputy National Security Advisor, Meetings began of a small what we call deputies committee of the Deputy Secretary of State, the Acting Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, the Assistant Secretary of Transportation, and myself to coordinate this completely unprecedented undertaking. I insisted that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield attend these meetings so that we would have their direct advice as infectious disease experts. In late January, the White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, took over leadership of this group, which met on a daily basis primarily to deal with these repatriation and quarantine measures. After our meeting on January 29, the Chief of Staff and his deputy decided this this would be labeled the White House Coronavirus Task Force, and I was named its chairman. Now, HHS had a critical role within the task force as the lead emergency support function eight, covering public health and medical services under the National Response Plan. But the task force itself was always run by a White House official, since no cabinet secretary orders the efforts of peer cabinet colleagues. That is, and always has been throughout this crisis, a uniquely White House function, as it should be. To support the work of the task force, HHS coordinated a staff level daily operational interagency meeting each morning in order to implement decisions of the task force regarding the repatriation and quarantine efforts. We also had our own HHS coronavirus working group that consisted of the agency heads within the department which had come out of the disaster leadership group that our Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response had convened on January 23rd. By late January, we had integrated FEMA into our work under ESF-8, co-locating their team here at HHS because we knew that at some point, if this became bigger, FEMA would take on operational leadership of the whole of government response. Each of the departments I mentioned was involved in bringing Americans back from abroad safely. The State Department, DHS, and the Department of Transportation were the key agencies, of course, for transporting Americans home to our shores. But when Americans arrived home from China through these repatriations, collectively we would need to ensure that they did not spread the virus onward to the community. We needed to quarantine them. The federal government through CDC has authority to quarantine Americans coming from abroad. And CDC has a dedicated office that runs quarantine stations at ports of entry around the country. What federal quarantine staff do, however, is identify people who need to be quarantined and then ask state and local authorities to implement local quarantine and isolation requirements and procedures. The federal government had not exercised its own quarantine powers since the 1960s, and there was no system set up at the state or federal level for physically housing those quarantined. We had to, and we did, build a quarantine system for thousands of travelers entirely from scratch. On January 29, the first plane touched down at March Air Reserve Base in California with Americans evacuated from Wuhan. Working with the Defense Department, HHS had housing prepared for them and provided both arrival medical screenings and ongoing care as well as every other service they needed throughout their 14-day quarantine. Four more repatriation flights later arrived. Over the next month, more than 3,000 Americans would be brought home from China. And from the Diamond Princess and Grand Princess, the cruise ships that had suffered outbreaks with large numbers of Americans. There was no documented spread among those quarantined or follow on spread from those we brought home. This was a remarkable logistical and public health achievement, accomplished without any formal pre existing system to pull it off. Although there is reason to believe the virus potentially arrived here in December and January, Retrospective analysis from CDC has now confirmed that there was not large-scale community spread in the United States throughout February. A study out of Seattle retrospectively analyzed specimens from patients with respiratory disease from January 1st through February 20th and did not find one positive result in 5,270 samples. There's a myth out there that if only we'd had a superior testing system we simply could have caught any cases and isolated them. But given the retrospective analyses we've now seen, that would have been like finding a needle in a haystack. At the time, CDC was using its systems that detect respiratory illnesses, which was the appropriate way to look for the virus given what we knew about it. And that did not show widespread presence of the virus. The same goes for CMS claims data, no evidence of a significant rise in respiratory illnesses. No country, no country, had a specialized syndromic surveillance system back in January and February that could have more accurately picked up cases based on symptoms. And given that we now know that up to 50% of people are asymptomatic, any such symptomatic screening system would have missed half the cases. But we knew, and we told the American people, that we could not hermetically seal the United States off, and we would see spread here. We needed the ability to detect where the virus had begun to spread, so that we could take containment and mitigation measures. The problem, however, is that the only test the FDA had authorized for COVID-19 in February was made by the CDC and its contractors, which had limited capacity and faced manufacturing problems. The CDC was always able to test every sample it received, and its testing criterion, based on what we knew about the virus at the time, made sense. It was for symptomatic patients with a potential link to Wuhan. But given what we now know about how widely the virus had spread and how it could spread before symptoms develop, what we really could have used was the hundreds of high-complexity labs across America, such as academic and state and local public health labs, developing their own tests to start testing possible cases. Government rules, however, stood in the way. These labs typically develop tests for viruses on their own and were starting to use them without ever seeking authorization from FDA. But FDA was now telling them that they needed to receive an emergency use authorization, which requires submitting data to FDA for review and performing a number of validation steps. FDA had announced without public comment in a post on its website that these kinds of tests, which normally require no FDA authorization, would have to receive an EUA during a public health emergency. Not only was this a new and significant burden for labs scrambling to respond to an emergency, but FDA was not even making this requirement clear to HHS leadership or to the public. Labs weren't used to this process, and now they actually had to do a great deal more work before they could start testing than they would if there weren't an emergency. On February 29th, we agreed with FDA leadership that they would allow labs to start using tests they had developed, as long as they also submitted a completed EUA application within 15 days. With the EUA requirement out of the way, labs could finally do what labs across the world had already begun doing—developing tests, validating them on their own, and churning out results. Still, it was not until mid march that FDA allowed labs to do their own testing without applying for an EUA at all, like they would during a non-public health emergency as long as they were doing so under state oversight. These labs could provide more testing capacity, but a nationwide outbreak required enlisting commercial testing companies, the first several of which received EUAs in mid-March. Parts of HHS had already been working with these private sector testing partners for weeks. On February 1st, when there were still fewer than 10 cases confirmed in the United States, a government-wide working group led by HHS's emergency response arm, ASPR, formalized a strategy for encouraging and supporting test development. On February 5th, BARDA, a component of ASPR, launched a formal solicitation for applications for federal support. And we made the first funding awards on February 25th when there were still just 14 confirmed cases in the U.S. and only 45 deaths from the virus across the world outside of China. These early investments have led to the remarkable technological advances we've seen in testing throughout this past year such as the development of rapid tests that have been strategically purchased and distributed by the federal government. In January, we also began work with the private sector to dramatically expand production of supplies available to American health care providers. On March 6, the President signed the first emergency supplemental. Before we had this funding, in late February, Asper had already begun planning to work with large American clothing companies to make hundreds of millions of sterile cloth masks that could help meet demand. On March 4th, anticipating those funds to come, we announced a procurement for a half billion N95 respirators, driving production even higher than it had been. None of this would have been possible without the foundational work with vendors and pre procurement activities we had led starting back in January. On March 16th, the President announced nationwide mitigation recommendations, the 15 days to slow the spread. That same day, the first vaccine against the coronavirus entered clinical trials, the fastest ever, thanks to the work done in January at NIH and at BARDA. The work we did throughout those two months bought us valuable time in slowing the spread. It gave us two crucial months to start the development of vaccines and therapeutics and begin working with American manufacturers of PPE. Today, even as we face daunting levels of cases and deaths in many parts of the country, we've made real progress. That work in January and February is the reason that we now have hundreds of thousands of safe and effective vaccines being administered to Americans every day, which is the reason that we have so much hope this year. Because of the heroic efforts of Americans from every walk of life, from scientists and public health professionals who have worked so much overtime, to health care providers who haven't had a day off in months, to ordinary people making sacrifices to protect loved ones, We will get through this crisis and we will defeat this virus. Thank you for what every one of you has done to support our response so far. And know that because of your efforts, victory is in sight. Thank you.